morning. Good to see everybody. Um, privilege to be up here. It's been a long time. The last time I spoke, I was doing the math, it was almost three years ago exactly. And at that point, I was newly pregnant and so, so morning sick. But of course, we weren't telling anyone that I was pregnant yet, so I was up here just feeling like I wanted to throw up on everybody. And so my great plan was to chew some gum while I was speaking, because the mint kind of helps me feel a little bit less queasy. And about halfway through, I uh, choked on my gum, and it was a whole thing. And so, and of course, you know, these sermons are recorded, so now it lives forever on the internet. So hopefully that three years in between now, things will go a little bit more smoothly. I'm not chewing gum today. I don't, I don't want to throw up, so uh, we're already off to a bit of a better start. So it's good to be back, good to be with you all this morning, and good to be with some of you guys in person, and also um, those, of course, watching online. So... Today, we are talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not one that we talk about all that often. Um, Before I get going, what do you guys think of when you think about the book of Ecclesiastes? Just shout it out. There's not a lot of things we think of. There's a time for everything. Yes, very famous passage from this book. Time for everything, a time to be born, a time to die. Not very encouraging. Yep, this book is a bit of a downer. I think that's what a lot of us think of. Yeah, this, this book, yeah, th- that's exactly it. Uh, kind of a downer. Um, some other things that come out of this book, the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, comes from this book. Um, everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity, vanity of vanities. These are all phrases that come from this book. Um, But yeah, like I said, this is probably not a book we give a whole lot of thought to until it comes up on our Bible reading plan and we go, oh, yay, Ecclesiastes, yep, I'm going to do it, I'm going to read through it, I'm going to power through, we're going to do this, right? Um, And then when you get there, you get to the book, you start reading through, you go, this is kind of weird. Like, I don't know if I can say that about about a book of the Bible, but it's kind of weird. The tone is very different than just about anything else we read in Scripture, Yeah, you know, there's the book of Job, you have the Psalms of Lament. You know, we can see that things aren't always rosy, but there usually comes a point where God steps in and saves the day. And that doesn't happen here. So it's it's a little bit odd. Um, (laughs) When I was doing some research and preparation for this, I I was reading a few different um, theologians on this, and, and this one guy named Martin Shields in his book, The End of Wisdom, says this about Ecclesiastes. In short... We don't know why or how this book found its way into such esteemed company, i.e. the other books of the Bible. Yeah. Um, And and speaking of scholarship, when you actually look at the scholarship of this book, there is a lot of different opinions. There's not a lot of agreement about um, the structure of the book, the way it was intended to be read, even about the author. Um, The author introduces himself as the son of the King David, Um, So people have often historically assumed it to be Solomon, but most scholars now think it probably wasn't him. There was a a genre uh, of writing at the time called fictional autobiography that was very popular, so perhaps it was someone else who wrote it. And then you've got like multiple voices, some third person, some first person, so did several people write it? We don't know. So basically, we've got a bit of a jumble before us this morning. So... I think it's important to remember at this point what it says in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 to 17, where it says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. 
It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and to equip his people to do every good work. So we're, that applies to Ecclesiastes just as much as anything else. And in fact, it makes me really excited to get into this this morning to see kind of what we can figure out through all of the oddness here. So what are we going to do with the text today? So Ecclesiastes is a book best understood as a whole. I think you could say this of just about anything. Um, but this book especially, it's, it's a guy at the end of his life, near the end of his life, looking back and reflecting um, on what he has experienced. It's, it's kind of his own personal journey of understanding the world, understanding God, understanding people, and essentially reality. Um, so we don't really want to stop anywhere too soon on the journey. So we're going to do something a little bit ambitious today, so bear with me. We're going to do a survey of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Twelve chapters in 35 minutes, so... Um, Why don't we get going then, since, uh, since time is short and we've got lots to cover. So we're going we're gonna to kind of just go through chapter by chapter, stopping sort of where we encounter something new we haven't read, be read before, uh, and expanding on things we have previously read. So Ecclesiastes, that word, um, our English spelling is basically just two letters different than the Greek. Um, Ecclesiastes with two Ks in the Greek, two Cs in the English. That word Ecclesiastes comes from the Hebrew word kohelet, which means teacher or someone, not even necessarily teacher, someone just talking in front of people. I guess I'm acting as a kohelet today. I'm standing up here and I'm talking in front of you. Um, so it's, it's variously translated to mean teacher or preacher. Um, so chapter one, verse one to two says, the words of the kohelet, the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, that word vanity has a couple different meanings in English. More often than not, it means you're vain, you're full of yourself. Um, but it can also mean something is pointless, right? And so this is alternately translated meaningless sometimes. The root word for this in the Hebrew is hevel or hevel. I don't speak Hebrew, so I'm not quite sure on the pronunciation there. But it essentially means vapor or breath. So <sighs> comes, goes nothing of consequence, right? It's here, it's there, nothing really of consequence happens. So essentially what he's saying here, everything is no consequence. Um, it's alternately been translated futile, unsubstantial, absurd, senseless. One, <laughs> one uh, scholar that I read said a good modern equivalent would be stupid. Everything is stupid. So, and this guy doesn't say that ev just that everything is stupid. He says everything is the most stupid. So this is a literary device that we see elsewhere in scripture. Um, Lord of lords, king of kings. That means God is the most lordly, the lord over all the lords, the king over all the kings. So he's, this writer is saying everything is the most bad, the most pointless that it could possibly be. So welcome to your uplifting Sunday morning. Everything is pointless. So then he goes on in the next uh, few, ch uh, few verses to explain why he feels this way. So verses 3 to 11, I'm going to um, paraphrase a couple things here just for time's sake. But um, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Skipping ahead a couple verses here. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear, ear filled with hearing. 
what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. So basically what he's saying, um, everything's kind of been done. Any real progress we feel like we make just gets passed to the next generation when we die. Again, super, super uplifting. <laughs> so this is kind of the first reality that he introduces to us. And um, what we're going to be doing um, as we go through this text is we're going to be just writing down these observations about reality that he makes. Shane, I just want to make sure that this is in the uh, shot. Perfect. Okay, so reality number one. Oops. Life is Havel. And then you die. Okay, so that's reality number one according to this guy. Really uplifting. So why does he feel this way? I mean, we don't know. We don't even really know who the author is necessarily. Um, uh, most scholars believe that whoever wrote it lived, was living in post-exilic, um, yeah, so after the exile of Egypt, um, of Israel into Egypt. So, you know, that wouldn't have been a great time to live in, you know, being subject to the Egyptians. Um, but I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? Like maybe he's just a pessimist. He's seen a few things he wish he hadn't seen. Um, but this sentiment, as depressing as this is, I, in the various conversations with I've, that I've had with people over the last number of months, I think more of us can relate to this kind of sentiment in the, the current climate um, than, we, than, than maybe we usually could, right? We're a year and a half into a pandemic. There is social and economic and political just kind of upheaval sort of in the air. And a lot of people are kind of feeling this right now. You know what? Like, what, what is going on? You know, like, I'm frustrated. I don't get it. I don't understand, you know? So I'm actually, I, I think it's kind of great timing to be talking about this today because maybe not all of us can relate, you know, to the, the depth of this guy's sentiment. But, you know, we maybe kind of get a little bit where he's coming from. So this reality, number one, life is Hevel and then you die. So we're going to go on here uh, in verse 13 to 15 to see what the next reality is. So here he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So initially, you read that, and you go, yeah, okay, he's basically just saying what he said. He's, he's really not very happy about how God has designed things. Um, but when we look a little closer, we see that he actually is making a bit of a statement about God. This is the first time he mentions God, and this is what he says. An unhappy business that God has given. So God has kind of come up with the plan. This is the way that the world is going to work, and he has given it to us. You can't do that if you don't have the authority to do that, right? God is calling the shots. He's, he's laying the foundations is how it's going to be, and then I'm giving it to you to deal with. So God is the boss. 
by extension, we are not the boss. This is not a democracy, right? God is figuring out this is how it's going to be. You guys got to deal with it is what the, the writer here is saying. And this is a sentiment that we see elsewhere in scripture. Isaiah 40 verses 6 to 7 says, people are like grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. God's in charge. We're not. So that is going to be reality. The next reality. God is the boss. So we've got God is the boss and life is Havel. Life is hard and meaningless and then you die. So in light of these two things, the author goes, well, this is pretty depressing. I may as well try and figure out how to make the best of this. So he takes two approaches. So the first approach we read about in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and that is materialism. He goes, well, I may as well just get what I can get, build what I can build, do what I can do, and just have the most fun I can have. So he tries that out, um, but it doesn't really go so well for him because at the end, he comes to the end of his life and goes, well... Like, I can't really take any of this with me. In fact, everything I build just gets passed to someone else. Are you kidding me? That's not fair. So then he tries an, uh, a second approach, which we read about in verses 12 to 15. And this is the wisdom approach. So he goes, okay, I'm going to gain as much wisdom I, as I can. And I'm going to see if I can, you know, navigate this life and, and kind of outsmart the system that God has set up. But he gets to the end and goes, yeah that doesn't really work either. You know, sure, I mean, I think we can all agree, if you make wise decisions in life versus foolish decisions, your life is going to go a little bit easier, most likely. I mean, there's always things beyond our control, but generally speaking, right? Um, and this guy goes, yeah, yeah, that's not the point. It doesn't keep me from these realities. It's not going to keep me from dying if I make wise, wise choices. Whether I die at 20 or I die at 100, it ultimately doesn't outsmart the system. And this just goes back to the point that God is in charge. We are not. So then he ends with, a, again, a super uplifting sentiment here in verses 18 to 20. He says, so I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave everything to others that I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless, how hevel. So I gave up in despair questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. And so he kind of just continues in this like really depressed tone until verse 24 and 25, where he says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So, Essentially, he's saying, yeah, God's the boss. God figures out how things are going to work. And God has given us the capacity to enjoy things, right? We know this is true. We have our five senses. We can smell a delicious cup of coffee. We can look at a beautiful piece of art. We can hear the sound of laughter from our children. And it makes us happy, right? God has designed us this way. We would not be able to experience these things if God had not built this into how we are. However... My modern Christian mindset here makes me a little bit uncomfortable that he says there is nothing better for a person than to eat and drink and enjoy yourself. Uh, I don't know about that, right? Like, 
I thought our, I thought the best thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others just like, right? Okay, but so we're just going to put a sort of a pin in that, that kind of odd little thought there, and we're going to continue. So chapter three, we find the famous and the beautiful kind of poetic, there's a time for this, a time for that, and it's just, you know, about the ebbs and the flows of life. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into it today, um, but, you know, definitely uh, if you're looking for something to read this week, there's lots of great stuff in, in this book that we're not going to have a chance to get to, so maybe put that on your to-read list. Um, but then in chapter, in verses 12 to 13, we see this exact same sentiment again. I perceive that there was nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. So this is reality number three. We were made to enjoy. I hope everyone who's watching this online right now can see this. I'm, I'm a very bad millennial and I'm not good at technological things. So we're going old school today. I'm writing it by hand. Otherwise there would you know, probably be a nice PowerPoint up there. So hopefully you can all read this. Um, so yeah, so he says this again, you know what? Like we were made to enjoy. And in fact, he doubles down on it this time. He uses this Hebrew phrase, kol ha adam when he is referring to people should do this. And this phrase, we've translated kind of blandly to just read people or everyone. But it's a lot, it's a much more nuanced phrase than just that. I'll, I'm going to read a couple of different um, uh, scholars' translations of this phrase, kol ha adam. This is the whole of a person. These things are for all humankind. This applies to everyone. This is what being human is all about. This is the whole duty of people. This is people's sole purpose. So that's a lot bigger than, hey, yeah, you guys, right? He's saying this applies to everyone because this is one of the things that strikes at the core of who we are. And now again, probably your orthodox modern Christian mind is going, whoa, 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 hold on. That, that's, that's taking it just a little bit too far. So then, um, if, that, if that doesn't really get you, in, in verse 22, then he goes ahead and says it again. I saw that there is nothing better for people than to be happy in their work. That is our lot in life, and no one can bring us back to see what happens after we die. So this phrase lot in life. When I first read it, just in my regular old English Bible, I thought, oh, okay, so like lot is like gambling, right? So he's saying, oh, whatever, in this crazy random world, this is, uh, this is what's good for you. But then when I actually did a little bit of research about the root Hebrew word, um, it's a variation of the Hebrew word kelek that's actually used almost exclusively in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it means reward, portion, legacy, heritage. This is not something random. This is something that God designed for us, right? If you, if you are a parent and you don't have a will for your kids, um, probably, you know, stuff will kind of go where you want it to, but it, it might be a little bit random. If you sit down with your lawyer, you draft up a will, it's signed, 
your kids have a specific portion, a specific heritage, a specific legacy that you have said, this is what I want to pass down to you. And this is what this phrase means. So being happy and enjoying is our lot in life from God. So he's essentially saying that finding happiness kind of is, is the way that God is like, hey, he's throwing us a bone. So, you know, in the midst of the fact that life is hard and we can't make sense of it, here you go, enjoy yourself a little bit. Um, so, like I said, Christian alarm bells are going off everywhere. So, uh, I think it's important to note at this point, when this book was written, Jesus hadn't come yet, right? So this guy doesn't have the hope that we have. He doesn't have the hope for the future, the purpose for this present life, this, um, to witness this drive to minister right he doesn't have the same purpose that we feel because of Christ right but I think it's important that we don't just dismiss him completely on this thing because he's not saying hey if you have nothing better to do to do enjoy yourself he's saying enjoying yourself is uh is your portion from the Lord it is built into how you were designed it is one of the things that strikes at the core of being human so, where do we get this concept that enjoying life is unbefitting of Christians? Well, this has been something that, and I mean, you know what, maybe we wouldn't even say it in that kind of terms normally. We wouldn't say, oh yeah, of course Christians can have fun. But we're a little bit uncomfortable with the idea to some degree. Um, so, where does this come from? Uh, well, the, the idea has been around since the dawn of the church. Um, there was uh, kind of a secular meets Christian theology that resulted in some kind of um, uh, heresy called Gnosticism, which was the idea that anything physical or material is bad and anything spiritual is good, which obviously, look at the person of Jesus. Jesus was a spiritual person living in a physical body. He lived a sinless life. Material can be good. Even just looking at Jesus, material, physical things can be good. And we also know Satan, spiritual being, is not good, right? So this idea, no, that's out of whack. But these teachings began to seep into the church. And so people began to do these very pious-looking things, you know, not doing this, not doing this, not having too much fun, not enjoying things. Um, and, and that kind of permeated, right? And we've seen that all, there's, there's countless, 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 teachings and cults that have sprung off of Christianity in the name of you're enjoying yourself too much and it's not good. Um, and then even if you look at modern, m more modern times, um, I was raised in the Mennonite tradition and by the time I, you know, was around, my personal experience with that tradition was fairly evangelical, um, didn't, doesn't probably look a whole lot different than many other upbringings. Um, Christian upbringings, but I, I remember hearing stories from my parents, um, you know, dancing, you know what dancing leads to, so no, da no dancing, God hates dancing, even though David definitely danced, God is not a fan of that, um, and playing cards, You're, playing cards are evil, no go fish, you, no go fish for you, right, so we have these thoughts coming in from just, a, and these are just a couple different examples, right? We have these coming in, seeping in to our Christian thought, and so it makes us really uncomfortable. The other thing that makes us uncomfortable is the fact that there is actually some 
biblical parameters around having fun, right? And these are sprinkled all throughout scripture, particularly in the New Testament, sort of a believer's code of conduct, if you will. You know what? You guys enjoy your freedom, but this, we're going to draw the line on a few things here because that's, that's not quite honoring to God. Just one example is uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, um, Paul there, he, he quite clearly says, don't get involved with sexual, sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, drunkenness, wild parties, things that the world would say, yeah, this is a lot of fun, right? So we do know that there are some behaviors that are kind of off limits for us as Christians. So, so this hesitancy about the idea of having fun does have some scriptural um, weight behind it. So that makes it just a little bit more complicated, though. Like, how do we, how do we understand how to actually live this thing out then? So, um, number one, we can see that it's not about doing whatever we want, whenever we want, if it makes us feel good. That's, that's not for Christians like we just saw in Galatians there. Um, but if we jump ahead in, in Ecclesiastes now, we're going to jump up to chapter 5, and he lays out there um, a couple other kind of parameters that help us understand really what he's talking about here and really bring it to light. So, chapter 5, verses 10 to 11, he says, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth, except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? So, right, happiness is not about stuff. Happiness is not about stuff. And I think most of us know that, but at least we see it quite clearly here. This is not, as Christians, this is not where we're supposed to be finding our our happiness. It's, it's not about this competitive, you know, lust for more things. It's not about being an Instagram influencer and how many followers do you have. You know, that it's, it's not about any of the show of that. And then, oh, actually, yes, we find a very similar sentiment in 1 Corinthians ver, uh, chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to read 29a, skip ahead a little bit, and then 30 to 31, which echoes this really great and uh, says there, please, but let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains for us is very short. So from now on, those who weep or rejoice or buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or joy or possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. That actually sounds a lot like the tone of this guy in Ecclesiastes. It's all going to come to nothing in the end, so don't get too wrapped up in it. Heading back to Ecclesiastes now, we see a second thing that helps us understand this concept of enjoy your lot in life. And this really just brings it into focus. I love this. So this is chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Um, we're going to do the latter half of that verse 19 where he says, To accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. So to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. So we talk about this concept of lots. God has given us all a lot as humanity. But he's also given each of us an individual lot in our lives. I love, Carlin, how you said it earlier. We each have our own story, right? God has given each of us our own story. We are each built uniquely in the image of God with our own set of strengths and weaknesses. But God has made us unique. And, and not only 
just us, but the path set before us is unique. We are each in our own unique family. We are each in our own unique job. We, are, we each have our own unique history behind us that is shaping the path that we move forward in, right? God has given us each our own lot. So what this guy is saying is accept that. Accept who God has made you. And this is much easier said than done for some of us, but how many of us struggle with accepting our lot? I wish I had a different job. I wish I was taller. I wish I wasn't so, so shy. You know, we see the way God has made us and the things God has given us, and we don't like it. We are discontent with it. But this is what he says, that this part of it, accepting that, allowing the Holy Spirit to come in and blow the doors wide open for thankfulness and joy and peace, contentment in your life with the things that God has actually given you, not the things you lack, not the things you don't have. That is what it's all about, seeing God in your own life, not always wishing you were somewhere else or someone else, but actually walking with God where he has you and who, with who you are, who he has made you to be. And this, this isn't, I will be very clear, this is not just think positively about life, right? This is, this is very much involving God and recognizing God in your circumstances. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6 said this, Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's exactly it. It's not the stuff, it's with contentment. Going, yes, God, I accept who, who you have made me and what you've given me. I love how St. Francis of Assisi puts this kind of in context with this whole concept. He says, blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall enjoy everything. When you accept this, this reality, that life is tough, it doesn't really owe you anything, and you know what, God has given you good things, man, life just becomes awesome. The good things are not just, yeah, they're all right. The good things are good gifts from God. It says in James chapter 1, verses 17, every good gift, good and perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. And that becomes your perspective. It comes, it's coming from God. It's good. So now, you may be thinking, well, this is all very easy to say if you've got a good life, a life you're happy with, you know, you're generally happy with the th way things are going, that's all very easy to say. But I think it's important that we notice here that the writer has plopped this idea in the middle of a book that spends most of its time, as we'll see as we go on, talking about this. He spends the vast majority of his time saying how pointless and how tough life is. So I don't think he would put this in here, this idea that we should embrace what God has given us, if he meant it just for the people who weren't struggling. He's clearly struggling as he's writing this, right? So this is not just for the people who have it nice. This is for all of us. And if I can, I'll, I'll share a bit of a personal story here. Um, about 10 years ago, I, I was walking through easily the toughest season in my life. Um, my parents' marriage was imploding. Um, I had had a string of jobs that were not good work environments. They did not suit my skill set well. I was incredibly stressed. Um, and then on top of that, I was the victim of a personally targeted crime. Um, my anxiety was just through the roof. I was losing weight, significant amount of weight. And I'm a small person, and I was wasting away 
uh, I had significant health issues arising as a result of all of this stress and health issues that ended up following me for several years after this. And I will never forget one day I was driving in the car and it was Monday the next day, so Sunday, so, and I was experiencing the Sunday blues, I like to call them. Maybe someone else can relate to that. If you're in a job you don't particularly love, you're like, oh man, tomorrow's Monday. And you can't really enjoy Sunday because you're like already in Monday, you know? And so I was experiencing this Sunday blues big time. And I'm sitting in the car with Matt and we're driving somewhere, driving through Linden. And I just remember in that moment, the Holy Spirit's like, Buffy, it's not Monday. It's Sunday. I'm sitting in the car with you. You're with a person you love. The sky is blue. You're listening to music you like. I am in this moment with you. In, the, in this very small point in my life, in the scope of my own story, again, as Carlin put it, it's a very small moment. And at that moment, I, I'll tell you something. I was feeling the weight of this. God said, I am here with you in it. And that spurred something that has absolutely revolutionized my walk with the Lord. I began to crave those moments. That sip of coffee where I would actually just stop and go, oh, this tastes good. Thank you, Lord, for this drop of goodness in my tough life at this moment. And I, call, I started to call these things glimpses, where I would get these glimpses of the goodness of God in my day, and I would write them down in my journal. And it beca became sort of like a treasure hunt for me. But I mean, ultimately what it was, it was a way of coping. It was a gift from God, like the writer says, to manage and get through this. And obviously that, you know, that's done in conjunction with being in the word and prayer and stuff like that. But it became this driving force that the Holy Spirit just filled. And I had joy and I had peace. It did not change my circumstances. It did not change my lot in life at that moment. But the Holy Spirit began to work as I began to enjoy the good things that were in my life. So, I will just add a quick caveat here because I think it's important. If you are in a bad spot in life, and it's not just like, oh yeah, life is hard sometimes. If you're in like an unhealthy situation or like an abusive situation or something, this does not mean, oh yeah, just hang out in it and, you know, try and see the good in it. Not at all. Absolutely. Um, that's something you would need to work through and, and get out of. It's not saying just stick in it, right? Another thing too, you know, if you're dealing with mental health, clinical depression, that sort of thing, also seek help in that sense. But this is just a general thing for us to help us navigate this. So um, now as we're running a bit short on time and uh, there's actually a lot of repetition coming up, we're going to cruise through this. So what we're going to do from here on out, we're going to go through chapter, chapter after chapter after chapter, and we're going to mark down and tally up each time he talks about one of these things so we can kind of see where he's going with this. So chapter six is where we are at now. So he spends basically the whole chapter weaving in and out of the ideas that there is inequity in life. So that would I go under here. So things aren't fair. Sometimes people work really hard and they don't have anything to show for it. Sometimes people don't do anything and they live a long life and they've got lots of stuff. So that goes in there. And also he talks about the fact we all die. Uh, chapter seven, here he breaks from the observations a little bit um, to dole out some wisdom, kind of proverb style. And then nestled in the middle of that advice, he uses the phrase, Adam again. So this is an important thing. 
this applies to everyone. This is at the core of who we are. And it's the fact that we die. So he says, verse seven, or sorry, chapter seven, verse two, better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. So I don't really think we have to unpack that too much, right? Yes, we, we know that that's built into how we are designed. We don't live forever. So that goes here. And actually what I'm gonna do down here, I'm gonna write whole ha Adam. So we can see what he says this about. This is an important thing because this applies to everyone. So he says that about death and then he says that about being made to enjoy. All right. So chapter eight, he spends the first six verses talking about obeying the governing authorities. That doesn't really go anywhere here. So let's make another thing over here. Wow, this is really nice. We're going to just put that under miscellaneous wisdom. So there's lots of that throughout here. Again, if you're looking for something to read this week, Ecclesiastes is a great book, lots of wisdom, lots of really interesting things he says. Um, and then in verses 7 to 9, he talks about the fact, again, that we all die. Again, I apologize to anyone who was hoping for a super uplifting sermon today. This is not really it. Okay, and then in verses 9 to 14, he talks about that there is, again, inequity. Life is not fair. So we're going to put that in the life is terrible category. Um, hey, enjoy yourself. Eight, chapter 8, verses 15. We were made to enjoy. Finally, another category. Um, oh, hey, in another category, verse 16. God is in charge. We don't always know what he's doing, right? This is not a democracy. God, God calls the shots. We'll put that over there. Uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, he talks about the fact that we all die. Oh, okay, great. Um, enjoy yourself, he talks about enjoying yourself again in verses 7 to 9. Throw another one there. Um, oh yeah, again, life isn't fair. Chapter 10, some more Proverbs-style wisdom. So we're going to put that down here in the miscellaneous wisdom category. Chapter 10, some more of that. Oh, chapter 11, sorry. Um, and then chapter 11, verses 5 to 6, he talks again about the fact that God is in charge and we cannot always make sense of what he is up to. And then lastly, in verses 8 to 9, enjoy yourself. So, you'll notice we've got a blank category yet. And we're actually through all of the books of Ecclesiastes except the last one. And this one is where he explodes in his last point. So, all we have heard very little about God in this book so far, but at the end, it all kind of comes together. So chapter 12, and this is reality number four, we were made to honor God. So let's see what it says there. So we're going to read chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say, life isn't pleasant anymore. Hmm, I wonder if he's speaking from experience here. <laughs> Sounds like a little bit of regret because that's he's saying life isn't pleasant anymore. 
Remember him before the light of the sun, the moon, and the stars is dim to your old eyes. And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here. The clouds continually darken your sky. Remember him before your legs start to tremble. Remember him before your teeth stop grinding, your eyes see dimly. So in this space of about six verses, he implores us nine different times, remember God. Remember, remember, remember. So what does this word remember mean? Um, the Hebrew word used here is zakar. Uh, it's, it's pretty much what you think it, it would be. Um, it means be mindful of, um, mention, consider, boast in, celebrate, right? So there's a couple, couple other ones there to kind of spice it up. This is, this is all of the things we think it would be, right? This one isn't too complicated. We don't need to unpack this a lot. Be mindful of God in your life. Celebrate him. Boast in him. Look for evidence of his goodness in your life like we were talking about before. Turn it back to him in praise. Spend time in the word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time remembering to him together with other saints, right? Remember, remember, remember in everything you do, in all the days of your life, infuse it with a remembrance of him. So then he closes up the book um, in verse 13 and 14. We're going to read verse 13 here. He says, I love this. This is in the NLT. I, I just love how it's phrased. So that's the whole story. Here is now my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commandments, right? Remember him, honor him, for this is everyone's duty. So we see this phrase again. Kol ha-adam is used yet again. Honoring God is central to what it means to be human. And again, I don't really think there's a lot to unpack there, right? As, as Christians, we've, we, we know this, right? It's all over scripture. This is what God created us for. He created us for communion with him, to honor him in our lives. So I'm um, going to wrap things up here. If I can find my paper. So um, we have got our survey of Ecclesiastes. So hopefully... That worked out. Like I said, there's so much good stuff in there. We could, just couldn't get through for time's sake. But this is, what we, this is what we are left with, right? These are the four main realities that he points out. God is the boss. Life is Havel and then you die. We're here to enjoy. We were made, or we were made to enjoy and we were made to honor God. So two of these things we have no control over, right? God is in charge. And I'm really glad I don't have control over that because I want God to be in charge. God is a good, good God. He's a good, good father like we sang about earlier, right? Life is tough, and then you die. You know what? That'd be great if we could change that, but again, we can't. So what are we left with then? We're left with two things we very much have control over. We very much have control over, am I going to be thankful? Am I going to enjoy the good things that God has given me? Am I going to remember God? Am I going to honor him with my life? These are the things in the face of tough, tough times. Like I said, you know what? The last 18 months has been characterized by a lot of change and loss and loneliness. And some of us are weathering it better than others, but nonetheless, it's been a tough time. And so this author with this ancient wisdom thousands of years ago who never would have foreseen there being a 2021 and a Manitoba and a pandemic like this, that wisdom still applies to us today. And you know what? I, I really, I feel like this is an important thing we often miss out on for ourselves personally, but also for our witness to others, because everyone else in the world right now, whether they know Christ or not, are feeling the weight of this right now. 
And when we show up with a fullness of joy from the Lord, because we're, we're communing with him, we're seeking him out in our lives, we're, we're enjoying him and blessing him for the good things he has given us, that speaks to people. They go, why are you feeling that way when this is so clearly true? You know, this is a powerful, powerful witness. So I would encourage you, if you find that your spiritual walk is consistently lacking in the fruits of the spirit of joy and of peace, consider, maybe the Lord is saying something to you here. I want to leave us all with you today um, to ponder and to pray on this week. And uh, I'd just like to pray for you all. I'll stop all right. So. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this word. I thank you that you created us for you. You created us to honor you and to remember you. And you created us to enjoy the good things you give us. Thank you, Lord, for the good things you give us in the face of the fact that life doesn't make sense sometimes. We thank you for the good and perfect gifts you give us, Lord. I just pray right now, Lord, for everyone here and for everyone listening online. Lord, give us receptive hearts to the good things you have given us. Lord, grant that we would, we would see and recognize your fingerprints on our lives. And help us to turn those things back to praise. Help that to make a habit, a spiritual discipline in our lives that we would bring honor and glory 